Welcome to the A Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. So, COVID-19, social unrest, climate change, demographic shifts, what more do you want? It seems like we may have a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to maybe make something better, to restructure what we do, to find a better way and a better place to do our real estate. Now, to have that conversation, I'm really lucky to have Tracy Hayden Lowe. She's the uh, data scientist, a researcher, and a fellow with the Ann T. and Robert M. Bass Center for Transformative Placemaking. That's a, that's a bit of a mouthful there at the Brookings Institute. Um, and I've asked her to, to chat through this and, and to help us unpack what this placemaking in a future world is going to look like. So Tracy, welcome to the AFIRE podcast. Gunnar, thanks so much for having me. So um, would love to, maybe let's just start uh, with a level setting in terms of an overview. Uh, Really loved your report, which is available online. Uh, The Great Real Estate Reset, uh, focused on, uh, on various issues around how both residential and commercial uh, real estate are kind of going through forces of change. And you can you talk a little bit about the report and perhaps what drove you to create it? Sure. Thanks, Gunnar. So our motivation here is that, um, you know, we're kind of looking at the big picture, um, not just in terms of the pandemic and in terms of these many intersecting crises that kind of all came to a head um, in 2020, um, but understanding that um, we're actually looking at a lot of long-term trends that have been gradually piling up over time. And what's happening is more that we're just reaching a breaking point in which what we're doing has become so inefficient and so fragile that our economic and our governance and our social and civic infrastructure are at a breaking point and can't handle um, the, the current situation. And so it's just a moment where um, what we've been doing for a long time isn't working anymore. And it's time to start talking about what has to change and how to change it. It, it reminds me of, and this is probably a misquote or a misattribution, but uh, Bertolt Brecht, if things cannot stand, they won't. Um, and I think we're, we're at one of those points, it sounds like, um, especially from the reporting that you've been doing here. Yes. And, and my concern there particularly is that uh, real estate is a sector in which we just have a huge amount of exposure. Right. right? We're talking about the largest investment asset class in the United States. Uh, so, you know, real estate combined is about 43 percent of all investment assets. Mm-hmm. And so that's... Uh, you know, significantly larger than the total size of the stock market, uh, the bond market, 
Um, and so we have a ton of exposure in this sector. And if this sector is fragile and at risk, then that's a problem, not just for accredited institutional investors, but for every American. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised at how quite frequently when you speak to someone who's not in the real estate industry, they either don't understand what this business is or they have some very interesting kind of misunderstandings of how this industry works. Well, the bottom line is that for most people, real estate is not just an investment. It's just an asset that they have because they need shelter mm -hmm. or they need a place to do business. And so uh, while it may also function as an investment or a hedge um, in terms of the financial role that it plays in a, an individual person or enterprise's life, the perspective of an investor is not necessarily the same as the perspective of, of an asset holder because those two those those two perspectives are looking to achieve a return on a different timeline and they're measuring their return in different units so all these undercurrents uh, that you're describing um, are serving to kind of shake us up. It's tough for us. It's not just that we're big in terms of large assets costing a lot of money. It's that we're immobile. So wherever we are um, is where we are. Um, and that creates some issues and some problems. Um, you talked a lot about the, 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 the separate and unequal issue. That's how you titled it. Um, certainly, that's an issue that has been brought up and in our in our face, if you will, um, after last summer, after the protests, after the horrific death of George Floyd, that it cannot be ignored. And certainly in real estate, it cannot be ignored. And you pointed out some really fascinating and troubling issues around this. Could, could you explain that a bit? Sure. So what we looked at in terms of trying to understand the persistence of segregation in the United States, the bottom line is that the U.S., has existed as a country for hundreds of years now, but we've never really existed as a racially integrated society, um, even though uh, we've always been a diverse society. Um, so that's, that's what we mean by separate and unequal, that we, we live separately and that baked into the way our real estate system works is unequal treatment for investors and tenants based on race. What we walk through in this research brief is that suburbanization in the 20th century in the United States in particular changed both the rules and the map in terms of how segregation works in the United States. And so the civil rights and the social justice issues that we're dealing with today in real estate are fundamentally different than the civil rights and social justice issues that Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement were confronting in the 60s. How so? Well, the first is that the, the map of segregation has really changed in the latter half of the 20th century. And the spatial scale of segregation has increased. Mm -hmm. So we don't just have segregated neighborhoods in the United States anymore. We have entire segregated jurisdictions 
and fragmented regions where the racial makeup of the urban core versus suburbs in what people in real estate call the favored quarter has have drastically diverged. And that's raising these big questions about how policies that follow jurisdictional lines, such as tax policy, school policy, transportation, other infrastructure, utilities, how all of those policies, by following jurisdictional lines, become new mechanisms for enforcing and even deepening segregation even further. Hmm. You know, certainly at this point, a lot of people would not believe that lenders are still engaging in redlining practices like were publicized back in the 60s. Um, however, is that true? Is redlining still happening? The map of redlining has changed a lot, but the issue with residential segregation is that when white people and people of color live in separate neighborhoods, that makes it possible to simultaneously either target or withhold from communities of color, even without actual um, uh, racist or malicious intent. In other words, like this is what people mean when they say structural racism, the idea that you could have racism without racists, because when we live in segregated neighborhoods, we can get racist outcomes. So for example, while uh, we don't have redlining as it was practiced in, for example, the 1940s anymore, um, more recently we have what's called reverse redlining, where black and Latino neighborhoods are targeted by lenders, and this is both major national lenders and smaller banks and non-bank lenders, they're targeted with marketing for subprime loan products. And those subprime loan products caused the 2008 financial crisis. And one outcome of that was that foreclosure rates after that crisis were 3.5 times higher in black neighborhoods as opposed to white neighborhoods, and 2.7 times higher in Latino or Hispanic neighborhoods. And so that kind of predatory lending, which has also been called uh, predatory inclusion, is that's different from the sort of uh, Jim Crow excluding, you know, type segregation of, of yesteryear, but it has the same outcome of eroding black wealth and uh, harming black communities. Yeah. And it, it's devastating when you think about it. Um, and the impact it has not just on these communities, but on all of us certainly creates more instability in our system. Yeah. The bottom line is that while the United States has, you know, has always been a society with, with some amount of inequality, I think there's growing recognition that the scale of inequality, both in terms of how extreme it is and how widespread it is, is a problem. You know, part of the the American social contract is the idea that the largest class will be the middle class right. and that that class is attainable. When you're we're talking about the segregation, it, it certainly reminded me that part of what's enmeshed in this is a kind of economic segregation as well. How is that impacting these communities and, and the individuals within these communities as they're trying to build wealth? 
That's a great question, Gunnar, because yes, segregation as it exists today is not just about race. It's also about income. The really extraordinary isolation that communities that are both majority black and majority low income experience in the United States is that that extraordinary isolation is what produced the social unrest that we saw in the streets this summer after George Floyd died. And what I want to emphasize is that while uh, that extraordinary isolation, for example, is what makes possible uh, the kind of um, targeting with over-policing that specifically led to the confrontation where George Floyd, you know, uh, died with his neck under the knee of a police officer. Uh, it's not a coincidence that when George Floyd died, he also had COVID-19. Because by isolating low-income communities of color, um, we also withhold from them health insurance, um, the opportunity for, you know, stable work that could uh, produce health insurance, um, and other social determinants of health like good air quality, access to schools, access to healthy food. These neighborhoods are systematically underserved by the things that if you don't live in a neighborhood like this, you take for granted and you just assume are, are there. Like, for example, a, gr a grocery store. Right. Well, and it, it struck me if you look at uh, cities around the country, where these dividing lines are and how stark they can be. Uh, when you think about the the, the street between Oak Park and the Austin neighborhood in Chicago, um, how it, it feels like two different worlds. You see the same thing in Detroit um, and the suburbs. You see the same thing in a lot of cities. And uh, it is striking and uh, hard not to be altered by it when you see it and when you really recognize it. Um, it's, it's painful. It, it is painful. And I think that one thing that feels like an important moment for 2020 is that more people have become aware of this pain. It's been the case in the United States for a long time that in order to get somewhere with social change, that it's it feels like black people have to suffer so that white people can learn. That's what you see during the civil rights era, yeah. that when you see John Lewis being beaten on the Selma Bridge, or you see civil rights demonstrators being attacked by dogs or blasted by fire hoses, that that's an uncomfortable visual and that opens up the possibility that maybe there really is something wrong with the status quo and uh, that this isn't just a, 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 you know, a power or money grab of some kind. And I think what we see in 2020 is once again, um, with the pandemic, this uh, and and with the death of George Floyd, that this the 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 pain that Black people in the United States are experiencing um, is simply so visible, and and visible through cell phone cameras, for example, um, in the way that we all could literally see what happened to George Floyd. That um, that it feels like opening up new possibilities, uh, but I think in. In, in order for us to really make progress, I think we need to get to a point where it's not a requirement that um, that we have to be confronted by this extraordinary suffering and loss in order to 
think bigger about new policies that are more just and that will produce an economy that is more resilient. Well, change is incredibly difficult for people, and it it almost always needs a significant trigger, because no matter how bad the present is, at least I know it. And let's not forget that there are some people who are not just comfortable, but very much benefiting from the status quo. Certainly. And so um, the idea that that comfort would be challenged, the idea that that comfort would be changed, um, maybe even taken away, mm-hmm. is, is something that's bound to produce uh, resistance. The message that I want to emphasize, though, is that um, this change can be a win-win. Yeah. And that there is a market opportunity in to do well while doing good yeah. in terms of uh, addressing uh, these communities that are underserved. And, and certainly our history has shown that when more people are able to live a, a decent life, the better the economy is. It's kind of hand in glove, but at the same time, we we don't we don't behave according to what we know. We behave according to what we see, and we see, oh, this guy has a job that maybe I could have, or something along those lines. Um, kind of gets in our way. Another area where change is difficult, and I think in some ways they're very parallel because they're the same issues. They're big problems that have been with us for a long time, and we've been reluctant to act, partially because it's such a big problem. And when it finally becomes visible and immediate, then we're able to act. And I'm I'm talking about climate change. Uh, That we certainly, last week, we had... uh, we had the, the, the incredible uh, storm down in Texas and the incredible and deadly um, impact it had on the people of Texas. Uh, I keep wondering if that will help give more energy to the changing that's occurring in terms of people's thinking around sea level rise and what needs to be done. But I wanted to start still with the with the, uh, the, 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 the separate and unequal discussion, because I think it's also related to environment. And, and you talked a bit about it as people that are kind of in this situation that for whatever reason don't have the same access to opportunity are having to go into environmentally um, less than optimal places. Right. Yeah. So systematically across the board, um, these these same communities that are low income and are disproportionately people of color um, are they're most often um, uh, the the land that's available for them to live on is marginal land that is that that is relatively higher climate risk. Um, so they're they have greater exposure to risk, but at the same time, they are the people with the fewest resources available to either fortify those living conditions or to migrate elsewhere. And so that's a paradox that is a recipe for more pain as we saw in Texas last week. Well, when you think about it, you showed a chart about the highest risk areas in terms of uh, sea level rise and climate change. And this is not just sea level rise, right? Climate risk includes extreme weather events, um, which could include, uh, there's the problem of having too much water, but there's also the problem of having too little. And yet that's where all the migration is happening to those places. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and this is something that's going on right now, right? That even in the middle of this pandemic, that uh, migration to the Sun Belt um, is it ha- is continuing, and uh, you know there's a there's explosive growth going on in uh, the housing market uh, across uh, Florida right now, for example. So, 
this is a long-term trend that's been going on in the United States that um, uh, we're growing a lot in the Sun Belt, and that includes a lot of the areas of the country, both on the coast and inland, that are the in the long term going to be the most vulnerable to climate change, and so that um, is uh, that's an issue that's going to affect. Um, households in those communities um, across income strata, um, and but this uh, this big migration that we've had um, to the Sun Belt in the last thirty years in the United States, um, ultimately we're going to be looking at a reverse of that migration as climate change gets worse and worse. You know, I think what we saw in Texas last week shows us that as these extreme weather events become more and more common, we're going to discover that. You know, even if um, built environment inventory is located in places uh, where it's it's secure um, from flooding, uh, the inventory itself may simply be functionally obsolete, right? So, for example, um, houses that don't have insulation. Uh, you know, most institutional investors I know have have essentially said that's where we're investing. Sunbelt, period. That's where we go. Um, and I keep wondering. Everyone has a different time frame because obviously we can't predict either what's going to happen with the rising, you know, in terms of the timing, in terms of climate change issues, or in terms of human behavior in the face of that, very difficult to predict. But when they change, they will change quickly. You said 30 years. When do you think it's going to become evident to an investor that it's that that there's a reversal happening? Is that 30 years or is that something that's shorter? Well, so this so this 30 years is um, looking at growth in the Sun Belt since 1990. And, you know, what I would say is um, uh, you are correct that what's happening in the Sun Belt right now is like a game of musical chairs um, where we're in the part of the game where every where the music is playing and we're all circling the chairs. Yeah. But at some point, the music is going to stop. People are going to rush to sit down but there won't be enough seats for everybody. Mm -hmm. So there are two things that we need to do about this. One is to create more seats in places that are more climate resilient, right? So to try to get ahead of climate migration and make sure that there's capacity in the right places when it does need to happen, mm -hmm. which that's one thing that we're not doing right now um, that certainly represents a, a long-term investment opportunity. Um, the other thing that we need to do is um, uh, to make sure that uh, within the Sun Belt that, you know, uh, if growth is still happening there, that it's happening in a way that is resilient and fortified to the possibilities of climate change. And so what I would say to someone looking to invest in the Sun Belt right now is that we have all the data in terms of climate risk right down to the parcel level this is not something that is you know hard to obtain um you know for for any for insurers or for anyone looking at making an investment and so just make sure that you know you're looking at your timeline and your pricing and the possibilities which is never an easy thing to do um especially in the face of what is now kind of a a grab for as much stuff as possible as the demand for real estate continues to increase there. I mean, it's it's hard to resist that. Um, and it's difficult to overbuild, you know, to, to you know, to build for the future. Uh, that, right. That's a hard thing to do. But so when, you know, if you're looking for a quick return, you know, that's high risk, but potentially high reward. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, that's that's one kind of business. And people aren't people aren't going to stop doing that. And 
they, I mean, they don't have to. They, they simply need to understand that there is the possibility that when the music stops, they will be the one still standing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that real estate tends to attract a kind of personality that is prepared to accept that the risk and the possibility of failure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you might end up with those 5,000 acres somewhere <laughs> in Arizona that you end up not doing anything with. Right. And, 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 you know, if you can, and if you can afford to soak that, okay, so be it. So, you know, I, that, that I think is, is, is not that big a deal. I think the bigger deal is to understand that, um, other players within the real estate sector. So for example, um, regulators in the public sector and insurers are going to be, you know, every year going to be taking a harder and harder look at these issues. And that um, at some point there may be a need to look a little bit further ahead and a little broader in terms of what the next market opportunity is. I, I agree. And one of the things that always kind of disturbs me with those parties is that their time scale is different. So an insurance group is only underwriting year by year. Um, we're having to underwrite for five to 10 years. Um, that's a very different proposition. And it exposes you to a higher level of risk. If you think the insurance company will handle whatever the, the issues might be eight years from now, well, they can, but their price might suddenly make it unaffordable. So, you know, especially when it comes to environmental risks, there's a disconnect in terms of timing. Time horizons change what you do. Yeah. And I would say that that repricing is imminent. Yeah. And, and again, I don't think it's something that's gradual. I think it, it's, it's where it is until it kind of dawns on the market. And that market realization happens very quickly, kind of like a bank run. You're absolutely correct, Onar. And so, you know, I think another way to handle risk besides just trying to avoid it is to hedge it. Yeah. Okay. And so right now, one thing to think about is diversifying the portfolio and um, also looking at ways to stabilize the portfolio by saying like, okay, maybe don't put all your eggs in the <laughs> Sunbelt basket, you know, think a little bit broader. And, you know, those are all great ways to manage risk. And those strategies should absolutely be deployed. Absolutely. And as someone who's not in the Sunbelt, I, I welcome all institutional uh, investing in the Great Lakes region. Uh, we have a lot of fresh water here, so it might not be a bad idea. Well, and I think when you when you look at kind of the the bigger timeline of the next few decades of climate change, that the interior of the United States, um, especially the northern interior, is extremely well positioned. The Great Lakes are just one of many assets yeah. that are agglomerated there and that have the capacity to yeah. um, to sustain the climate migrants that are on their way. They're on their way. Okay. That's what I'll tell everyone here. They're on their way. <laughs> Let's pause right here and uh, we'll pick this up in part two of the podcast where Tracy will discuss changing demographics, zoning, and functional obsolescence of residential and office space. And, And of course, she'll talk about COVID. So make sure to listen. It should continue to be a thought provoking conversation. You've been listening to the A-Fire Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A-Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A-Fire Podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. A-Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the A-Fire Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A-Fire. To so learn more about the A-Fire Podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, 
opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.